Well, we're in an interesting place in Esther. We're in Esther chapter 3. And what is interesting is this will not be the first time where the story would seem to be, well, and now they can live happily ever after. Something now is going to go wrong yet again. At the end of chapter 2, we saw though the, the, the chapter reveals the horrors of the empire and what uh, Esther is subjected to, she ultimately becomes queen. And you'd go, okay, so at the end of it all, everything is fine, well and good, and everything now has been solved. But that is not the case at all. As the end of chapter 2 then uh, continues on, what we see is uh, Mordecai is someone who is in a position of influence. We noted that in chapter 2 because he's able to check in on Esther, see how she's doing, find out uh, what's going on as, she, as he's able to be near the court uh, of the women. The same thing is revealed to us at the end of chapter 2 where it turns out he is uh, able to hear as he's sitting at the king's gate two of the king's eunuchs who are personal bodyguards for the uh, personal entrance into the king's quarters they are conspiring to kill the king and I think it is interesting that Mordecai doesn't go, well, you know, he is a lousy king. He is an awful wretch. He is a depraved, wicked man. And so that's what he deserves. <laughs> Instead, you see Mordecai send a message to Esther, who Esther is able to report it to the king saying, here's what, what Mordecai has found out and has been able to preserve your life. At verse 23 says, the whole thing is investigated. It's fi- found out to be so. And, and the men then are impaled then uh, on the poles for their their treachery and the end of this is important this all is recorded in the book of the chronicles in the presence of the king so the king is told all about this as it all unfolds and it all lays out but what becomes fascinating are the very next lines because the very next line is and after those things king Ahasuerus Xerxes promotes Haman. And you would have thought that would have said, and for all the loyalty and faithfulness of what Mordecai did, King Ahasuerus then elevated Mordecai. But he doesn't. Instead, he elevates Haman. Haman now is placed in verse 1. It says, advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. He is elevated to uh, one of the highest places within the empire. And worth noting, as we've made these observations about life in the empire, what it's like to live as the people of God in a wicked world is note that as Mordecai does something good, he doesn't receive the benefit for it. This is particularly startling because we have in history Persian kings frequently rewarded those who showed faithful loyalty to them, uh, giving them land, uh, giving them high honors. Always Persian kings did that kind of thing. So as you read this, you are supposed to be jarred by the fact that Mordecai gets passed over and rather this person that we know nothing about at this point, Haman is the one who is elevated to a high place. So 
high of a place that he's elevated that verse 2 tells us all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman for the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. The king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And so Mordecai refuses to show him any honor. He will not bow to him. There's absolutely nothing that he will do to show any kind of deference or honor to Mordecai. And it's a direct violation then of the king's command. This is what the king said to do. Twice the text says uh, that this is the king's command and this is what everybody was supposed to do. And that is the end of that. What is so interesting is verse 4 does not explain why did Mordecai do this? Volumes have been written in trying to figure out, well, why did Mordecai refuse to do this? And I want to tackle a little bit of this before we are able to move on because the explanation of what Mordecai is doing, I believe, is central to the movement of the book. One of the more typical answers is that well, what Mordecai is doing is he's being righteous, that you're supposed to only worship God alone. And I want you to note that the text doesn't say anything like that. And I think that's important for us to observe that nothing says that what was being commanded is Haman was being elevated as a god. And of course, you can't worship other gods. And so therefore, that's why he refused to show him any honor or pay him any homage or show any kind of thing like that. And I think that's an interesting thing that, that comes out as you think about it is sometimes we will layer on this and say, Well, what Mordecai is doing is the right thing because you aren't supposed to bow to anybody. And so let me kind of just take a second and blow that out of the water. And all the people in the Bible who bow down to other people, Abraham bows down to the Hittites. Jacob's sons bow down to Joseph. Moses bows to Jethro. David bows to Saul and Nathan bows to David. Nobody reads their bowing and go, well, that's a sin because they must have been honoring him as a God. Nor should we do that here. That's not what's at stake. There's nothing here that says, well, this was some kind of honor that was being paid as if this person were a God. And I would suppose we could certainly imagine that Mordecai certainly bowed before King Ahasuerus. Now, something special is happening here that Mordecai is willfully choosing to not bow down to Haman, even though this is the king's command, even though this says this is what is to be done. And in fact, it perplexes the king's servants in verse three who are asking the question, Why are you doing this? So with all of that laid out that you have, and this isn't even an exhaustive list, just a partial list of all the people who bow down to each other in scriptures as a way of honor, as a way of just simple respect for the position that the person has. Sometimes what is put forward is, well, Mordecai is just being vindictive. He should have been the one who has been elevated. And so, you know, at the end of the day, Mordecai is just mad. He's just upset. That should have been his spot. And Haman takes that spot. And so really then he's just kind of a tantrum of sorts. And Mordecai is angry about that. And so he's not going to pay him any respect or any kind of honor whatsoever. And again, I would just note 
Though at least you have the context of you would suppose that Mordecai should have received this honor that Haman has received. The text doesn't say that either. And I would also suppose if that were the reason why the king's servants would be probably well aware of that. Yeah, that should have gone to Mordecai. Who's this guy getting elevated? I would also argue why this, this cannot be the point of what's happening is because it does not advance the key points of this book. Because this would make the message of the book to be, Mordecai gets vindictive and really upset at Haman, which causes Haman to want to exterminate all the Jews just because this one guy is is upset because he hasn't been promoted. And so God then rescues the people of God and elevates Mordecai after his tantrum. I don't think that's what the takeaway of what the book of Esther is ultimately supposed to be, is that this one man, by his sin, almost unilaterally destroys all the people of God, and that God comes into the rescue and then puts him in the highest place. So rather, I think we should go with what the text does give us. And what the text does give us is interesting. Verse 1 of chapter 3 gives us a statement about who Haman is. Haman is an Agagite. Now, the reason you might read that and go, so what, whatever. Well, the reason why that's important is that we have been given two very short uh, descriptions of the backgrounds of Mordecai and of Haman. Regarding Mordecai, remember... He's from the family of Saul, a tribe from the tribe of Benjamin. That was told to us in chapter 2. And so his family line reaches back to Kish, connected to Saul. You might remember what Agag is all about. Well, Agag reminds us of Saul was supposed to utterly destroy all of the Amalekites. Do you remember the king's name of the Amalekites? Agag. And so there is this tension that is brewing here that is attempting to be shown between Haman and between Mordecai. Now, I'm not sure that the point of saying that he's an Agagite is so we can trace him back to as an Amalekite legitimately by lineage because the book of Chronicles indicates the Amalekites were destroyed. So I'm not sure that this is the intent, but rather... In Jewish literature, even into the first century, the term Agagite was something to be used to refer to the enemy of the Jews. First century Jews wrote of the Romans and called them Agagites. Well, what do they mean? Enemy of the Jews. And if that were, if we weren't sure about that, if you drop your eyes down to verse 10, notice how Haman is described. Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And that's going to be said later on. That's what's being put forward is that there is a tension between the two and who they represent. Mordecai is representing the people of God. He represents the Jews. Haman is representing the enemy of the Jews. And there is this tension that is building for a collision that's about to come. I think what would kind of help in grasping this idea is let me illustrate it this way. This will work for the majority of us in the room that remembers the Soviet Union. This will, this will work then. 
1980 Winter Olympics, there was this infamous hockey game. There was a hockey game between the United States and the Soviet Union. Movies have been made about this event. History has been written about this hockey game between the United States and the Soviet Union. And the hockey game wasn't even for a medal at that point yet. And yet it was a big deal. Why was it such a big deal about a hockey game? Because of what the two sides represented. That game represented the Cold War. It represented democracy versus communism. It represented, especially in our minds, good versus evil and all the horrors of what communism is all about. And that was the tension that was underneath it. You would look at it on paper and go, it's a hockey game. What does it matter? But if you understood the tension of the world at that time and the the powers that be, you understood what this little game symbolized. And that's what's being put forward here, is that what these two are doing is symbolizing the essence of the battle that exists between these two groups. And I think that really plays out in chapter 3 and verse 6, when Haman is told that Mordecai is unwilling to bow down to him, what is Haman's response? Kill all the Jews. A perfectly normal response to one individual, you know, making you mad. Just just wipe them all out. You see, the whole idea is setting up this picture is that we have the enemy of God's people who is desiring to wipe out all of God's people. And as you read through the book of Esther, you are reading ultimately this cosmic battle being put on the pages. It is ultimately this battle of good versus evil, light versus dark, the sons of Seth versus the sons of Cain, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. They are framing together this tension that exists between those who desire God and those who are enemies of God. That's what this is setting up for us. And calling him an Agagite really drives that home. Here is the enemy of the Jews. It is the dark music and the black hat and the dun dun dun. It is the villain. He is going to get them all. And that's what how you're supposed to see Haman. And this isn't about being vindictive or anything like that but a recognition of the cosmic battle that's at stake here between good versus evil, light versus dark, the people of God versus the enemies of God. Which then, as we've talked about, especially in our Wednesday classes, we trace over these things. We're going to see an awful lot of irony through the book. And if you remember, we really have some irony here because ultimately, remember, Israel was supposed to destroy all of the Amalekites by God's command, but failed at that moment. And now you have an Amalekite, perhaps symbolically, now going to destroy all of God's people by the king's command. This book is all about watching reversals happen. And right now the tables have turned to the bad. This is your empire strikes back idea. We have flipped to the dark side now and it's going to be bad 
for the people of God. And that is what is being described here in this cosmic battle. Now that puts forward Haman's plan from verse 7 to verse 15. You're going to see that we have a planning that happens. Verse 7 describes that what Haman does is he is going to cast lots to determine the timing for the destruction of all the Jews. That's not unusual for the ancients, in particular the Persians. They enjoyed at the beginning of the year casting lots for monumental or important events and casting the lot for the day that it should happen. Leaving it up to the gods to determine what should be the particular day that these things would unfold. This becomes a great irony because Scripture has words that say, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. In particular, the irony is, after he casts lots, the lot falls that it's going to be nearly one whole year before this destruction date. They're in the first month and the lot falls to the twelfth month. And so while Haman thinks he is depending upon the gods to set the perfect moment for the destruction of the Jews, you see the hand of God moving to make this as late as possible for there to be time for the rescue of the Jews. Haman then goes in before King Ahasuerus in verse 8. He kind of spins a story here where he simply lays out, you know, there is this group of people uh, that are scattered and dispersed in there and they're not going to do you any good. Middle of verse 8, their laws are different from all the other peoples. They do not keep the king's laws. And that is not to the profit of the king to tolerate them. So if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put into the king's treasury. You know, you've got a group of people who are really a bunch of troublemakers and they don't keep your laws and there's really no reason to keep them around. So I'll pay a ridiculous sum of money, but scholars think this is an offer of up to about half to two-thirds of what the empire took in in terms of revenue in a year, offering 10,000 talents if we would just wipe out these people. And so then letters are given, verse 13, sent into all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, all in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now here you have the finger of God again, because not only is it going to take 12 months for this plan to come to pass, but the date is fascinating because if we are in the month of Adar, and it's the 13th day of the 12th month and the date of their destruction is the day before the Jewish Passover which means as the Jews then were supposed to be making preparations the week before that Passover they are putting their hope in God that they're going to make it to the Passover and that God will deliver them again and so you have these huge shadows that are being overlaid as this is building up to these events 
these pictures of this struggle between Haman and Mordecai, which ultimately is representing the people of God and the enemies of God. And is God going to rescue his people? Is he going to come to their aid? Is he going to deliver them as they go through this difficulty? And if I could keep you an hour, I'd do chapter four, but that will have to be, Lord willing, next week. I would rather stop here and talk about two big pictures that I think this sets up for us to teach us as we begin to move through the book of Esther and we look for the hand of God. As we've been asking the question each week as we look at this book, how are the people of God supposed to have courage in dark times? How are they supposed to have hope, especially when you see these kinds of things happen? When you see the darkness, you see the evil, you see the resistance, you see the power of wickedness rising and getting stronger. How are the people of God supposed to have hope? How are they supposed to look to God in those difficulties? And I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind that come out of what we've seen in this chapter. And first is that we are reminded throughout this book and especially in this chapter that we have here a cosmic struggle, that the people of God are always in a cosmic struggle. And I think when you read chapter three, that you get that important reminder, this collision of the people of God and those who are the enemies of God's people is always reminded to us in the scriptures. I'll give you just a few of them, because sometimes I think as we live in this culture and we live in this day and time, we have a sense of, well, you know, everything is just fine and comfortable and everybody's good with us. And so, you know, being a Christian should be easy. But remember, Jesus said, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the son of man rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets now is jesus saying so since you want to be blessed and rejoice and have a great reward in heaven go around making people mad always what he's saying is Being a Christian is going to cause people to hate you. There's going to be this problem. There's going to be those who will spurn your name and exclude you and revile you and hate you because you are representing Christ. Because you are representing what is right and attempting to do good. 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. That is an easy line to pass by. We read the top part and the bottom part. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We skip the middle. So that when they speak against you as evildoers. Notice doesn't say... If you keep your conduct holy, they won't speak of you as evildoers. No, keep your conduct holy and honorable so that when they do speak of you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God. 
You see, there's always this picture of this cosmic struggle that exists that we are a part of. Second Timothy three, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the rest of it is the evil are going to keep doing evil. Evil people and postures will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They're not going to stop. And you're going to be persecuted for trying to live a godly life, for just desiring to be godly. You will be persecuted. First John three thirteen. Here's something succinct. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. There you go. Simple sentence. Don't be surprised that they hate you. We kind of, I think, are surprised at that. We we've, we're like really, and God's reminding us of this. And certainly, Ephesians six is a really important passage. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see what God's trying to open our eyes up to is that we are in a cosmic struggle. There is the spiritual battle that is being waged. And the book of Esther is is pulling the curtain back and saying that this isn't just about Mordecai and Haman. This isn't about these two guys. What's what they represent, what they stand for, what they're modeling. That's everything to where the trajectory of where the book is going. And to understand that we have to step back and see this kind of hostility goes all the way back to Cain killing Abel. It goes back to light and darkness always being in opposition. And that we are able to have courage when these things happen to us. Because God said these things were going to happen to us. We're just not going to be surprised. You know, Mordecai should not have, you know, woken up and went, well, this is a real surprise that, you know, the enemies of the Jews are just coming at. I mean, we can't think like that. We have been told over and over again that if we are representing Christ and walking in the light, that will cause resistance and is going to cause us problems. The world is going to hate us and we need to be ready for that. We don't seek it out or want it, but that is the outcome of what we are going to do. Which I think then presses even more interesting to chapter 3. The other part I want us to see is that isn't it interesting that you have Haman coming in in verse 8 to Ahasuerus and say, you know, there's these certain people who are really not, you know, good people and not really helpful to you. And it'd just be better off we didn't have them around. And Ahasuerus does not go, you know, I think we should investigate this. I'm really concerned about wiping out a whole group of people and, you know, a mass genocide on a single day. We should, we should really like, look, he just goes, okay, here's my ring. <laughs> okay, you know, that's fine, no big deal. And the reason why that is important to observe is you're not going to look to the world and think they're going to help you in this cosmic struggle. Don't look to the world and think, well, they're going to support you being a Christian. They're not going to do it. They're not going to help you. The world is always against us and it doesn't care about the demise of Christianity. I think we can prove that in a number of ways. Think about how many times in history, even in recent history, 
where we read about or hear about Christians being persecuted on a large level. And all the nations of the world get really upset about that. And all the leaders gather together and there's a special summit. We're going to figure out what to do to make sure that never happens again, right? Do you remember a few years ago when ISIS had grabbed some people there who were claiming to be Christians and put them in orange jumpsuits and beheaded them? And boy, and all the world stopped and tried to figure out how are we going to stop these atrocities? Because we don't want more Christians killed, right? If we think that the world is going to be the rescuer, you're looking the wrong place. Your hope can't be to the empire or to a ruler who's going to come along and fix all that. The world is against the people of God. They're not for the people of God. They're not going to help the people of God and historically never have helped the people of God. That's what's happening here in chapter 3. Oh, wipe out a bunch of people, no problem. 10,000 talents in the bank. That sounds good. Fine. That's all the concern. Ah, we'll just get rid of that group of people. And how much all the more when Jesus tells us we are going to be ultimately the enemies because we stand for what's right. Because we tell people, here's what God says. We tell people you can't just do what you want to do, but we have to follow the will of God. We are going to receive that hatred. And nobody's going to be too upset if Christianity goes into demise. They're not going to care. They're not going to be upset about that. They haven't historically up to this point and still won't. And so I want to end by asking ultimately this question. What then are we supposed to do? Here are these pictures that the scriptures give us from Cain and Abel all the way through about this cosmic struggle between good versus evil and light and dark and those who are the people of God and those who are not. Well, let's take on the rest of Ephesians 6 because Paul spoke of, all right, you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but these dark powers in this world. So the next line is, you need to take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Here is the picture that's given to us. We need to get ready Because we don't know when it will be our time to stand. And if you know chapter 4, you see what I'm leading up to. Because chapter 3 is, are you ready to stand? Are you ready for this kind of moment? It's setting us up for this. And this is the question that is being laid out to us. We do not know when it will be the time that we need to make our stand for God. We don't know, as uh, Ephesians 6 verse 13 says, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. You don't know what that evil day is going to be, when that will happen. When will it be that you will have to make your stand for Christ? When will it be that you're going to say, I'm going to serve him above all else? When will it be that you will be called into account and are you going to side with the people of God and say, I'm a follower of his or you're going to be a part of the world and not have to suffer? Be ready to stand on that day because you don't know. And so he says there, we need to get the armor of God on so that you can be faithful no matter the difficulties. I want to end with this illustration. When when we were kids, 
And if you're a kid, you probably still do this. You might be doing it after services. We like to play the game hide and seek. Hide and seek boiled down to this. You get one person to close their eyes, count to some particular number while everybody else hides. And it doesn't matter if the kids are ready in their good hiding place or not. When that kid hits the designated number, you know, we all said ready or not. Here I come. (laughs) There was no wait, 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 wait. (laughs) No, it's ready or not. I hit the designated number. You know, if you had a good hiding spot as a kid, you were okay with that. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm good. And you were you were the one jumping around trying to find a spot. You're having a heart attack. What am I going to do? I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. You know how many times God is telling us, are you ready? Are you ready to withstand the evil day? Are you ready to participate in the spiritual battle that we've been thrown into? Are you ready to understand which side you're on, either the people of God or not? Are you with light or are you with dark? Are you with good or with evil? That's what this is all about. And we have to be ready to make that stand. And we don't know when that day will come. And there's no ability to, when that day comes, to say, okay, well, give me a chance to to bone up on some scriptures and let me get ready for this. It's as instantaneous as our world flipped upside down last year. And here we are. It's a whole different world. And now suddenly you've got to make your decision. You following God or not? You proclaiming Christ or not? You serving him or not? It all comes down to that. Are we ready to have the courage to take the stand and follow him, even if we are maligned or mistreated? Ready or not, our faith is going to be tested. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the warnings that you give to us so that we are not surprised that as we attempt to speak to the world about you, and to shine as lights in this dark world, that we understand that there will be difficulties, there will be resistance, and there will be rejection. And Lord, I pray that we would do all to be ready to stand firm. Lord, I pray that you would help us in putting on the armor of God, that we would be fully ready from head to toe to take your word to the world and to show other people the good news of your son. Lord, forgive us for the times where we have shrink back, that we've taken a step back and we've been fearful of what consequences we might have to endure because we follow you. And Lord, we pray that we would learn from those experiences and opportunities and that that the next time we would be able and that we would be ready to withstand. Lord, we know that we must look to you for help. We know the world is not going to help the people of God. And we understand, Lord, that you are our only rescuer and you are our only hope. Lord, we pray that you would turn the hearts of leaders, turn the hearts of governments, and turn the hearts of people within nations so that they would turn back to you. They would turn back to you and be saved. Lord, we know you desire for all people to be saved. You are a loving and forgiving God. We pray that that would happen. We pray that hearts would be turned back to you because of the pandemic that is going on and that the difficulties that the world faces would be an opportunity for the world to wake up and see your glory. 
Lord, we pray that we could be instruments in your hand to do it. And Lord, we pray that you would make us strong in the days ahead. We know, Lord, that our culture is turning more and more against you. And so we pray that you would give us the strength we need in the days ahead to be faithful and holy and to shine as lights in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll take this opportunity to sing an invitation song. If you're ready to come to Jesus, turn away from your sins, aside yourself from the people of light. We encourage you to do that this evening before it's too late, to be ready before the difficulty comes, to be ready before Christ returns. If we can help you in any way, won't you come?